Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. This is the first miracle of Jesus. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw out some and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would teach us from what Jesus did in this miracle about what he came to do in the work of the kingdom and write on our hearts an expectation of the best that is yet to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The Christian can always say, the best is yet to be. Always. Sometimes it corresponds with uh, a natural time in life. When a baby is born, we are so grateful for the life and we're thinking about what is to come. When our children are growing up and they are uh, accomplishing things, they're doing things, they're, they're uh, learning things. When they graduate from high school, we're thinking about what's ahead and we're thinking that the best is yet to, to be. And we are uh, excited uh, about that. And then they, they get their jobs, they, they get married, and that we have a, a wedding celebration uh, of our own, just like, like this, and we're thinking about the life to come, the best is, is yet to be. And we uh, just love to live like that. But there comes a time in life where loss can happen. It can happen at any time. It's a tragic thing when it happens uh, where there's loss with our children, when there's loss growing up, loss of a parent, still with young children, when losses happen in life, we often start thinking the best has already been. I remember when I was uh, in high school reading a book about a high school athlete in his glory days in this small town was when he was the quarterback of the school. He was the most popular guy in town and a great athlete. And then he graduated from high school. He went to work at the local town uh, factory or plant and uh, kind of settled into a very, uh, in, in, compared to his former glory, a middling life. He ended up having an affair. And things just got, went from bad to worse. And the whole theme was 
He had already experienced his glory days and everything was downhill from there. How do you approach life? In every circumstance, is it the best is yet to be? Do you hear what I'm saying? The Christian can always say that, the best is yet to be. Or are you prone to think the best has already been? I want you to remember that I said this this morning, the best is yet to be. Write it on their hearts and in several months it will come up again. And if you do remember it, come back and tell me, I remember when you said this in the sermon. And now you know, it's something that, that's to come. This is a teaser. This is a mystery. It makes you have to try to remember the best is yet to be. And so it will be written on your hearts so that in every circumstance of your life, whether it's growing up with things in this life that lie ahead or whether you begin to think the best has already been and everything is downhill from here. Oh, but I remember that message. It's a message from the Bible. It's a message demonstrated by Jesus himself in this miracle in a small way. And on the very big scale, the best is yet to be. I remember that. And then come and tell me. I remember months ago when that was the theme of your sermon. And tell me that you remember it. And if I've forgotten it, you'll remind me. The best is yet to be. Remember when my uh, father died and my mother was in dementia and could hardly realize he was gone. She said, what happened? I said, well, daddy's gone to heaven. This is, this is maybe the fourth or fifth time I've told you this. I want, I want you to write it on your heart so that when the time comes for you, you can remember the best is yet to be. He said, daddy's gone to heaven. She said, that's good. That's good. And I think that that gave her a peace at a time in life when she was totally out of control, could not get out of bed for the last two years of her life, she was able to rest in the care of her caregivers, yes, but even more in the care of her maker and the savior of her soul. And she looked forward to heaven. She drifted into thinking about her brother who had died. See, the loss can happen at any stage of life. When she was young, her older brother died. And... She thought about him. I guess we drift in our minds back to our early days more than, than my father. But she had this sense of heaven. Do you have that sense of heaven? Or do you feel like the best has already been? This passage teaches us something on the small scale about that. But to understand this first miracle of Jesus at the wedding of Cana, we have to remember this is a, a big issue in all of the Bible. On Saturday nights, Mary will often ask me, well, do you have any good illustrations? She's your best advocate. And sometimes I'll tongue-in-cheek tease her and say, oh, I hadn't thought about that this week, or not really. And, and, uh, but she, she'll remind me of that. And this morning, I was already thinking the Bible gives us uh, this great illustration. It's the most expansive illustration of our relationship with God in the Bible. It goes from the first book in Genesis, the first chapter in Genesis, to the last book, Revelation, and the last chapters of Revelation. And what is that illustration that God gives us so that we can understand our relationship with him? In the beginning, God created us in his image male and female. 
and he gave us the family so that we have two illustrations from it. He is our heavenly father and Christ is the bridegroom and the church is his bride. It's established in the first chapter of the Bible. When I conduct a wedding, most ministers do something uh, like this, whether in more formal language or less formal language. We begin with dearly beloved. We're gathered to unite this man and this woman in the bond of holy marriage. Marriage was instituted by God from the beginning for our mutual companionship and love. You remember that God said uh, of Adam, it's not good to be alone, not good for man to be alone. Loneliness is a problem. He created Eve, his equal, not God above him, not the animals below him, but Eve of his own flesh. And he said, flesh of my flesh, bones of my bones. And they were husband and wife. Therefore, a man is to leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. That, the reason God made us that way is so that we can learn in this earthly illustration something of him. So we go on in the marriage ceremony to say, God gave us marriage for the establishment of the family in which we bear and raise our children and to represent the mystical relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. We can understand our relationship with Christ, his love for us, his sacrifice for us, and our devotion to him by looking at the loving relationships, the ideal of it in the relationship between husband and wife. Now that illustration is marred because our first parents turned away from God and we fell into sin and there's conflict in our relationships. We still understand the ideal. This illustration stretches from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. In Revelation chapter 19, we read about the great marriage feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 6 and following, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. At this I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, Do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. This great, expansive illustration from the beginning of the Bible to the end is the illustration of a wedding And that is God's relationship with us through our Lord Jesus Christ who gave his life for us. He's the bridegroom. We are his bride. And it's a celebration. It's an eternal celebration. The wedding banquet of the Lamb to which we are headed. That's the best that is yet to come. And we're invited to it. So blessed are those who are invited in Revelation. It's those who are invited and who respond. You saw in the passage in Matthew that we read in the prayer of confession that there are many who are invited who don't come. Many who are too busy, who have other priorities, other idols. 
And in rejecting God, they end up rejecting the messengers. In this parable, it stands out as, as harsh that they, they killed the messengers. Who would do that in the parable? A parable is drawn from everyday life. I doubt that there is a wedding banquet ever where the, the person who brought the invitations was just killed. But Jesus was telling this parable to illustrate for the Pharisees who were rejecting him. You have rejected and killed God's prophets before. All the messengers that have been inviting you to return to God through repentance and faith, you have killed. So the, it's a sharp rebuke in the, uh, the parable itself. But we need to realize that God does invite us. He invites all. He tells in the parable in Matthew, he tells the servants, go out and invite everybody from the highways and the byways. Luke tells the same uh, parable, and, and some respond, I have married a wife and I have bought me a cow. I was one of those obnoxious kids that when we teach the Bible, taught the Bible songs, we'd love to twist them a little bit. And uh, we'd sing, I, I will not come to the banquet, don't bother me now. I have bought me a wife and I've married a cow. <laughs> I stopped saying that when I got married until now. Because Mary wanted me to have good illustrations. Um, anyway, um, we often, our world often, doesn't hear this great invitation to this great celebration that is eternal. Somehow we think it's smarter, it's wiser, there's a better life to live for the things that we know are going to pass, that are just here for a while. And we don't come. We're all invited. And then... We learn from the parable, too, we cannot come in our own righteousness. If you look in your, your bulletin the, at the passage in Matthew that we read for the, the confession of sins, it's kind of a surprising application of the uh, parable that Jesus went on to say this. When the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. The man came in in his own clothes. In the parable, the application is when we try to stand before God in our own works, we don't belong. We as sinners cannot stand in the holy presence of God. In the passage in Revelation, there's kind of a mystery attention at the wedding feast, the wedding supper of the Lamb. It says uh, that his bride has made herself ready at the end of verse 7. It sounds like we make ourselves ready to enter into God's presence. But the very next expression is this. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Picture this like you're walking through the day. We make ourselves ready not by dressing ourselves up, but not by trying to wash our own clothes, not by fixing ourselves. We receive the gift from the one who's throwing the banquet of the fine linen, the white clothes. The fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Now, sandwiched in the middle of we make ourselves ready, the righteous acts of the saints is the key. That we cannot do it ourselves. We have to just receive the gift of God. What's the white linen that we receive? What is our righteousness that becomes ours? It's the gift of God through Jesus Christ. 
He washes away our sin. And he gives us his righteousness to wear. And that's how we're made worthy. That's how we can stand before God. So it's the wedding feast of the Lamb. We cannot come in our own righteousness. Instead, we come through the blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb, that just sounds gory in our culture. Unless people understand the context, it's like, are you blood worshipers? It sounds almost weird, doesn't it? We get used to it as Christians. What does it mean? In Revelation, it's the marriage supper of the Lamb. John the Baptist said of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The people in Israel would have known all the Old Testament backdrop to that. That it was by the sacrifice of the Lamb that God accepted us with the substitute dying in their place. Those Old Testament sacrifices could not accomplish what they promised. They pointed to Christ who actually sacrificed himself and accomplished atonement, covering, washing away of our sin. For it to be the marriage supper of the Lamb, that reminds us that he had to be the Lamb who was slain so that we can be forgiven. He's the one that purchases our clothes to wear by by his own sacrifice. So that's the great wedding feast of the Lamb. That's the big picture in the Bible. The expansive illustration that God gives us for our relationship with him. And then it's no surprise that the first miracle of Jesus would be something to do with the wedding feast. It reminds us of that big picture. If we don't know the big picture, the context, we might trivialize the wedding feast and think, well, Jesus really didn't want to do this miracle. But because his mother asked him to, he ended up doing it. And what's that about anyway? Because were people drunk and Jesus supporting that by supplying even better wine at the end? But we just missed the whole point entirely. Just like the, in a couple of chapters, the Samaritan woman at the well said to Jesus, Lord, give me this water so I won't have to keep coming back here to this well. She sees everything in the earthly term. We miss the point then. Jesus is uh, giving us this uh, miracle. He chooses this occasion at the beginning of his work to remind us of the work of the Lamb who would be slain for the sins of the world and the marriage banquet, the marriage feast, that's our eternal celebration. So let's go into the passage itself. As we go into the passage, we begin to learn something about Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the change in Mary's relationship from mother-son to follower-savior. It's an interesting dynamic. And when you pray, uh, excuse me, got to go back. I went to Matthew. You can pray while I find my passage again. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. So that's right at the very beginning of this. This is prominent for her. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Now, weddings were family occasions for family and close friends. It's very possible that Mary's mother was actually responsible for the catering. For her to have concern about it, it's it's small town, small community. Jesus and his disciples are close enough friends to be invited to come. Mary's mother might have been responsible yet for this. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, at this point, she didn't ask him to do anything about it. But you mothers know how it is. 
He's just, it's implicit, isn't it? She brought to Jesus an earthly problem. Now, Jesus was 30 years old now. The last time we hear of Joseph, his earthly father, we know that God was the heavenly father. We remember the virgin birth and all of that, the, the Christmas stories. Uh, Joseph last appeared in the Bible when Jesus was dedicated at the temple at the age of 12. When Jesus begins his ministry at 30, he's not mentioned anymore. It, it is, I think, well founded in thinking that Mary was a widow by this time and that Joseph had already died. So Mary had turned from relying on her husband, the carpenter, to her son to take care of the family's uh, needs and issues. It's very natural. So it's natural for Mary to bring this earthly problem to Jesus. And she said, they have no more wine. And Jesus' response is surprising. In the NIV it says, dear woman, why do you involve me? My go-to commentary is D.A. Carson's commentary on John. And he spells out how this Greek is very hard to translate. The term of endearment, dear, is really not in the Greek. It's a polite term, but it's a distant term. To say, woman, why do you involve me? That almost sounds rude. Don't try this with your mother. Woman. It will not go over well. So that doesn't translate it well. Lady doesn't, isn't any more respectful. It almost sounds like the cab driver in New York that says, lady, get in. Uh, don't try that one either. But D- Jesus is doing something here to show that Mary does not have the inroad with him as her mother, as his, his mother. He says, ma'am. Perhaps that's the best translation, except for the child's growing up, having respect for his mother. That still shows deference to her authority to say, yes, ma'am. That's not, it's more the way uh, a Southerner would say to uh, somebody they're meeting an equal, ma'am. It's a polite term, but it's a distant term. Ma'am, what to you and to me? That's the Greek. That idiomatic expression has something to, it means something like, what do we have in common? Our agendas are not the same. Ma'am, our agendas are not the same. My time has not yet come. You see, he is the Lamb of God who is to be slain for the sins of the world. It was not time for him to do the work he came to do yet. And his mother is kind of saying, This is the problem. Get to work, son. He says, my work is not the same as the work you're asking me to do. And my time has not yet come to do the work I came to do. Now, in Catholic tradition, tradition, many of you are familiar, whether you have Catholic backgrounds or or, or not, there's this idea of Mariology, the worship of Mary. That you pray to Mary so that she can be your advocate with her son Jesus, because she has special inroads. You see, it's a little too intimidating to go to God the Son, but we can pray to Mary, and Mary will go to Jesus. And after all, Jesus, then they go to this passage, because after all, Jesus did solve the problem and change the water to wine. You think, see, it was her special inroad, special request. That doesn't really fly here, because Jesus is making a point of saying, My agenda is not your agenda, and my time has not yet come. I have come 
to actually provide for the great marriage supper so that people can have white linen to come in. Now, I wouldn't make everything of this verse except that other places in the Gospels, Jesus says that his family, he, he turns to his followers and says, Behold, my family, instead of his natural earthly family. He is telling Mary, his mother, you need to come to, the work that I've come to do for you is not as a son granting a special favor to my mother. It's as your savior, I will go to the cross to pay for your sins, just like everybody else. There's this equalizer here. This did remind me of a time now, I almost wasn't going to share this illustration because it's embarrassing to me. But Mary said last night, do you have any good illustrations? The time when I was newly wed, we were, I was a youth director, and we had a baby, our firstborn, Davison, and he was a terrible baby. <laughs> now, you go, wait a minute. He was a great baby, but a terrible sleeper. And we were probably terrible parents of that, too, and we were fried. You were just like going around like this. And we were having a lay renewal conference at our church where I was a youth director. And the lay renewal had been a very important uh, event in the life of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church. God used it to turn around that church and elders became Christians. It was just uh, a, a wonderful event there. And on Saturday before that conference started, there was a prayer meeting at the church for the lay renewal. And my mother called us to see how things were going. And Mary and I were fried at home because we were getting no sleep, no sleep. Everything was always Davison's fault then. Um, and uh, I, I made the mistake of telling my mother that they're having a prayer meeting at church for the lay renewal, but I don't think I can go. And she said, oh, you have to go. That's the most important part of the lay renewal, to pray for it. She was absolutely right. But I was fried torn between my bride and my mother, and the leave and cleave it was coming to mind. And I can't remember exactly what I said, but it was something like, woman, <laughs> your agenda is not mine. And I think I said something like, I, I can't go, and I'm old enough to decide for myself and hung up on her. I do remember I hung up on her because I still remember it, and I still feel bad about it. She was, she was right in her advice. She didn't know the whole picture. But have you all ever had that experience? Have you ever had that with your mother? Or as mothers, have you ever had that with your children? There's the stage where you grow up and you're no longer the child, you're fellow adults. The problem with using this illustration is that I didn't do it in a sinless way. I was a sinner. I didn't think well enough on my feet how to do it respectfully, etc. But this is a kind of coming of age time for Jesus when he tells his mother, I need to be your savior, not the son that gives special requests. That's what he's saying to Mary. And look how she responds. This is where she's the great example. She says to the servants, her mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. See, we should have a whole new Protestant Mariology in, in this. That instead of thinking we can pray to Mary to have special inroad to Jesus, listen to what Mary says to the servants and let her say it to us as followers of Christ. What does she say? Do whatever he tells you. 
that she moves from having the special inroad of mother, she moves to being a follower of Jesus, calling on real obedience to him. Hear that from her lips, and we should honor her for that great, uh, great instruction. Finally, in the last part of the chapter, we will compare the ceremonial cleansing to the blood of Christ. You know, where do I get this from this uh, miracle? Well, look in verse, uh, verse 6 and following. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. It's not just incidental that John points out these were used for ceremonial washing. That's something we should take notice of. And these are huge jars, 20 to 30 gallons. That's 120 to 180 gallons of water. And they're filled to the brim. That's a lot. Jesus said to the fellow servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Now, just to stop here. Suppose that's all he had done. That would not have helped at all. These jars filled to the brim with waters of cleansing. If the servants had gone to the master of ceremonies and said, here, I know you've run out of wine, but we've got 180 gallons of water. That doesn't help. It doesn't help the feast. The point is made that Jesus is always teaching a deeper spiritual truth than just the earthly appearance and application. Just like when he told the woman at the well, I'm giving you living waters, he was speaking of a spiritual truth, not you don't have to come back to this physical well anymore. He's saying all these waters of cleansing that are commanded in the Old Testament and demonstrated, they're not enough. They don't accomplish the cleansing from sin that they signify, that they promise. Something more needs to be uh, done than lots of waters of cleansing. We may say, well, we don't live in the Old Testament days. We don't do that. It's the same thing if you rely on going to church, trying to be good, all the external rites of of religion. If you rely on that to, to be a good person and wash yourself up to stand before God, it's the same thing. No matter how many gallons of water, you don't wash away your own sins. Those are just rituals of cleansing. Their validity is in pointing to Christ and what he would do. So what did Jesus do that points to his work? He then says to the servants, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. D.A. Carson pointed out in his commentary that the Greek word draw, I'd never seen this before, never thought about this before. We always think that the water turned to wine is in those six jars that had 150 gallons of wine, 180 gallons of wine, overabundance. It almost sounds like, well, is he fostering drunkenness at this party? It's, it doesn't quit, quite fit with the rest of Scripture about do not be drunk with wine. It is an overabundance of God's blessing. But D.A. Carson says the Greek word translated draw is always associated with drawing from a well. He said, now don't be dogmatic about this. I don't think we need to be dogmatic about it. They might have drawn from these water jars the way you would draw from a well. But it very well could be that the original readers, that the original experience was, they did everything they could with the jars for the waters of cleansing. Didn't fix the problem. Now go to the well again and draw out what I will give you. 
and take that to the master of ceremonies, the master of the feast, and taste what Jesus provided. He said, this is the best. This is the best. Yeah, the, the master of ceremonies didn't know where it came from, but he knows it's the best. Jesus' work is the best. It's categorically different than what we can do for ourselves. It's not waters of cleansing filled to the brim. It's the wine, which in the Lord's Supper signifies his blood shed for us. What he does for us is categorically different, and it accomplishes all that the waters of cleansing promise. Even the world can see it's something right about forgiveness, something right about reconciliation, something right about loving, but they don't quite get it with God. They, can, they don't know where it's from. But when you live out the gospel in your lives and, and you're reconciled to God, it tastes good. This was the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. You see, in this miracle, Jesus demonstrated, as the master of ceremonies said, you've saved the best for, until now. The Christian can know this just represents our entrance through the blood of the Lamb into the eternal celebration that is the marriage supper of the Lamb. Is that written on your heart? So that when you're setting out in life and there's lots of potential in this life, you still live for the one that is eternal. When you're on the downhill side of things and you've suffered loss, you can say, but the, yes, the, the best is yet to be. Do you know it? Do you feel it? Does it change you? If you haven't come to the marriage feast of the Lamb, don't just do the outward circumstance of taking the Lord's Supper. Take the Lord Jesus himself and, be, and come into the feast given his righteousness to, as your clothing and given his atonement for sin as your forgiveness. Come to him and have that real future that is glorious. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, let us never forget this. At the times we'd be most prone to forget, when we've suffered loss, when we're very low, when we're in the last chapter of our lives here on earth, uh, when we have suffered loss that's tragedy early on, uh, when we're facing rejection, when we're facing difficulty, let us remember what Jesus has done for us when he shed his blood for us and rose again from the dead and calls on us, invites us to his great eternal celebration, the marriage feast of the Lamb. And let us always know the best is yet to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.